You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. We'll look at verses 1 through 16 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin, and there are some Bibles available in the back if you need one. Uh, John 11, um, the whole chapter now, is, it's one of the most memorable stories in the Gospels. Um, Jesus' friend Lazarus of Bethany dies, and just a sorry, spoiler alert, Jesus raises him from the dead. There's some weird noise going on over there. Um, <clears throat> Jesus raises his friend from the dead. I wish that could be as stunning a surprise for you as the first time you heard it or the first time you read it, uh, or even as the first time it happened, probably a pretty big deal. Um, but, uh, but the story's bigger than just Lazarus. It affects more people than just Lazarus. Uh, yeah, Bethany, I sent this out in a, the church email newsletter this week. Bethany was eventually renamed Al-Azariah, the place of Lazarus. Uh, but actually, his, his sister is probably a more central figure in this story. Uh, this story actually continues past the chapter break, once again, sort of spills over into the next chapter, maybe an unfortunate uh, chapter division there. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, when Mary anoints Jesus as a response to what's happened in her life and in her family's life, in uh, chapter 11, um, anoints, Mary anoints Jesus with the expensive ointment and, and wipes his feet with her hair. Um, more painful than one's own death is the death of a beloved, probably, usually. More painful than one's own death is the death of a beloved. So even though Lazarus is the one who dies and is raised, he's not really the main character in this story. As John tells the story, the focus is on Lazarus's sisters and their friends, the larger group, the, the disciples are included in their friends, um, and, uh, and the sign that Jesus works here has its most powerful effect on them. So this will be the last of uh, seven wondrous signs that are worked by Jesus. As recorded in John's gospel, there are more than that that he's done, but John has sort of carefully structured his gospel uh, to record these seven, seven wondrous signs. Each sign is a great good in and of itself. In and of itself, it's, it's a great thing, but really each sign serves a larger purpose than just the temporary earthly benefits of the, the, of the recipients there. It, uh, each sign points to something beyond itself. John makes that explicit in his gospel. Jesus makes it explicit as he <clears throat> performs these signs and wonders. This sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, this sign points to the glory of God. Jesus says that in our passage. It, uh, it gives us an idea of the shape of God's particular glory, of the nature of God's particular glory, which we will see conclusively in actually the glorification of Jesus Christ, God's Son. This glory, as, uh, as pointed to by this particular sign, the resurrection of, uh, of Lazarus from the dead, this glory really is, is like nothing we would have expected, nothing we would have chosen, nothing we would have signed up for. We wouldn't do it that way if, if we were God. Uh, but God's glory is, to use the words of Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's a strange glory. It's a strange glory. 
to be sure, but it is truly the glory of the real God. And when we learn to see God's glory here in the story of Lazarus, maybe we'll start to see it in surprising places in our lives, and that would be a very good thing. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me, let me pray, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we've already heard the news this morning of your forgiveness, your acceptance of us in Christ. We pray that this would um, <clears throat> take, take root in our hearts and in our minds. And as we come to this, this very difficult passage, um, we see Jesus doing some very strange things. We pray that the revelation would impact us, that we would be mindful and we would remember and we would hold on to your goodness throughout it all, that you would change us by your goodness, that you would change us by your spirit as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so one of the most encouraging things about the Bible is, uh, is how realistic it is. The scriptures don't sugarcoat things. Uh, the scriptures know the difficult human realities for what they are. They don't shy away from it. This is how you know the Bible means business. It ain't messing around. It's going straight after the hard stuff in this broken world. Now, that might be disturbing to you if you'd rather have a sugar-coated life. Um, but let me just shatter that illusion for you right now. Death. Death is a thing. That, that tomb that the kids are coloring on the next page in the bulletin there, it's got your name on it. It's got all your loved ones' names on it. It may be 
an empty tomb, but it's a tomb. Those family meals around your table at home, one day there's only going to be one of you left to sit at that table, and then there will be none. I'm not just trying to ruin your morning, but there's an, there's an inescapable reality here that we try pretty hard not to think about, but the, the Bible doesn't shy away from. You know what's even harder to think about than death? Even just the death of a beloved one? That there would be a God of love that lets that happen to everybody. That's the really hard thing to think about. Sounds like a good candidate for things to push to the back of one's mind. But the Bible goes right there. It keeps that problem in front of you. It sees your pain and your confusion and says, yeah, we're going to have to operate. (laughs) You're going to need some help. Imagine that you are Mary or Martha, the sisters um, of Lazarus. You you have some kind of relationship with Jesus. It's not made clear to us uh, quite how they know him or how long they've known him or how well they know him, but they have some kind of relationship with Jesus where he calls you friends. That they say, you love our brother, and he says, they're our friends. We're going to go to them, right? There's some kind of relationship here. It's a significant one, and you know that Jesus can do some pretty amazing things. Maybe you've even seen him do one of these amazing things, right? And your beloved brother, Jesus' friend, is dying, your beloved brother is dying. That's, uh, that's not really hard to imagine. It's pretty relatable stuff. We've all had loved ones in that position. But you can put two and two together, right? Jesus loves Lazarus, and Jesus can heal Lazarus. Thus, if we just notify Jesus of the situation, of course, get him in the same room, of course he's going to heal the one that he can and the one that he loves. So you offer this this prayer. That's what it is. It's a very good prayer. It's exemplary. We can learn a lot from it. Uh, We don't have time to go over it just piece by piece right now, but think about this prayer later. Go home and think about it. They send it by messenger. Lord, Lord, he whom you love, you love him. He's ill. Do something about it, right? That's implicit. Lord, the one that you love is ill. You've, I'm still imagining you're Mary or Martha in this situation. You have rightly declared the truth of Jesus' love, and you call upon him to act in accordance with his love and with his power. You know he loves, and you know he has power. Augustine writes about this passage. They didn't say... Come and heal. They dared not say, Speak the word there and it shall be done here, but only, Behold, he whom you love is sick, as if to say, It is enough that you know, for you are not one to love and then to forsake. You're not one to love and then to forsake. And it is true, it is true that God, that that Jesus loves. Lazarus and his sisters, just in case it was unclear to anybody, in verse 5 it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
slowing down to take the time to spell that out. And he is not one to love them and then to forsake them or abandon them when they call, right? So he drops what he's doing. He runs the 20 miles on foot, right? Beats the messengers back uh, through, through the wilderness. He arrives just in the nick of time for the 11th hour save and heals Lazarus just before he draws his final breath, right? That'd make a good movie. Or he just does what he's already done earlier in John's gospel with the official's son, and he says to the messenger, go, Lazarus will live, healing remotely by the power of his word. I mean, that's how friends are, right? That's what happens when somebody loves you and can do something about it. That's what he does. That's how good Jesus is, right? That's the shape of Jesus' love, right? He cares for me. So he'll spare me the bad stuff, the stuff that's overwhelming, the pain. He cares for me, so he'll spare me the sorrow, the loss, the grief. He'll spare me the cancer. He'll spare me the death. But Jesus doesn't rush in at the last moment. He doesn't rush in. He comes after that, after the last moment. He arrives too late when the corpse is already cold and he's missed the funeral. He didn't even show up for the funeral. So if you're Mary or Martha, you still think he loves you? You still think he loves you and your brother? Yes, yes he does. Do you feel loved? No. He does love you. It's just that his love doesn't look anything like you think it should. It doesn't look like what you think it should. Jesus loved, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so. Therefore, because he loved them. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved them with a divine love, therefore, he delayed. And Frederick Bruner says, Jesus' delays always hurt. And that was the shape of his love. That's what divine love looked like for Martha and for her sister, Mary, and for Lazarus. His delay was not forsaking. He's not one to love and then to forsake. His, his delay is not forsaking or abandoning or ignoring or he's got some other more pressing business to attend to. That's not, that's not the point. He loved them so he delayed. This is what his love looked like. Uh, Colin Cruz is another commentator. He says that um, Jesus' delay was not at odds with his love but motivated by it. He loved them so he stayed where he was and he didn't go fix the problem. This verse is probably more shocking to us than when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That it should be more shocking to us than when he raises Lazarus from the dead. We've already seen him do some pretty amazing stuff. But when he says it's because he loved them that he delayed and Lazarus died, it would be normal for us to have a problem with that. We discover later in the story that Actually, Lazarus has already died probably by the time Jesus got word of his illness uh, because of the time 
you know, he waited two days, showed up the next day, and he'd already been dead for four days. So, um, but, so Jesus wouldn't have been able to arrive before then anyway. But he sure didn't display the urgency, the kind of urgency we'd expect from someone who cared, right? Um, he left the family in Bethany wondering where he was. Why didn't he come? He's our friend. He loves us, right? D- did he even hear our prayer? Does he even care? Why didn't he help us? This doesn't make sense to me, and it hurts. <clears throat> there is an explanation for his delay. There is. But his response to them, what they see in it, it, it pretty well shocks and offends their expectations and ours. <clears throat> and when you find yourself in that place of pain, and you've called out to Jesus for help, you need relief, you want to avoid the suffering or the sorrow, you want some change, some big change, some, according to you, necessary change to take place that, of course, if Jesus loves you and he can do something about it, he would do it, right? <clears throat> you find yourself in that place and you're starting to resent him because a God of love really ought to have answered that prayer, really, then just know that's a normal feeling. That's not a good, that's not a good place to be, but it's normal. That's, we're all like that. Um, and you can process that with Jesus. You can go to him and process that kind of stuff with him. <clears throat> you feel unloved because of the suffering, because of the pain, because of the cancer, because of the death. You feel unloved, but the Bible declares that you are loved. Jesus does love. He's not the type to love and then forsake. It's just that his loving priority in your life is not necessarily what you think it should be. It's, it's not necessarily to spare you from the pain and from the cancer and from the death. Ernst Hainchen says that God does not spare those he loves from life's difficulties. Christ's love to you. Christ's love to you and your suffering are not mutually exclusive realities. That's hard to hear. But it's hugely important. And the New Testament is talking about this everywhere. Everywhere. How we can actually, at the end of the day, rejoice in the hardships and the difficulties, the trials and the persecutions that we endure because they are God's loving work in our lives. That's hard to believe, but the Bible wants you to believe that. For the situation in Bethany, Jesus had something bigger in store than just another healing, just another restoration, bringing a family joy. Boy, it would have brought them a lot of joy if he, if he swooped in right at the last moment. But it had to be after the last moment this time. It had to be a resurrection this time. And to make sure everybody knew that that's what it was, he delayed. So in that culture, um, <clears throat> there was sort of this idea that for a couple of days after death, a person's soul would sort of stick around, <laughs> hover and float around or something um, around the body, and that they could be resuscitated, you know, like a day or two. Yeah, maybe they could, they could actually be resuscitated. That, would, that wouldn't be totally uh, inconceivable, but... Um, kind of like Princess Bride, you know, he's only mostly dead. 
And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Even Miracle Max can't, can't help you if you're all dead, right? Uh, people don't come back after being wrapped in burial clothes, laid in a tomb with a stone door rolled over the entrance. People don't come back after that, right? I mean, what's that remind you of? So, <clears throat> so because of his love, Jesus delayed until after the funeral. After the funeral. And when he finally says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, that comes across as a pretty bad idea to them. They're not really thinking about Lazarus, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's where they were just trying to kill you, right? You want to go back there? Yeah, yeah, it was the place where they were trying to kill him, and that's where they're going to succeed in killing him next time he goes, when they return. You see, this, this thing with Lazarus in chapter 11, it, it's not just a sign it is a sign pointing to Jesus' own death and resurrection. It's not just that. It's actually the event that triggers that. It's the event that triggers Jesus' own death and resurrection. It's because he did this and raised Lazarus from the dead that uh, they couldn't take it anymore, and they plotted to kill him. So <clears throat> Jesus knew that, and he invited his disciples to join him, and that's the best place for them. That is the best place for disciples to be. Sticking with Jesus, even if it means going with him to his death. Even if it means going with him to my death. It's the best place to be because we'll be with him. We'll be going with him. And that's the point of his cryptic response. It's a little bit hard for us to nail down everything that he's talking about all the time, but his, his response about walking in the light versus at night and stumbling. It's best to walk with Jesus. He's the light of the world. It's better to walk with him than to walk apart from him where you're just stumbling around in the dark by yourself. It's best to walk with Jesus. Being with Jesus is really where you want to be in whatever circumstances you are. Even the valley of the shadow of death. So Jesus is telling his disciples to stick with him. He says, let's go. Lazarus is asleep and I need to wake him. And at first they didn't understand what he was saying, but he's talking about death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about. He's not just using euphemistic language, like as if Jesus couldn't bear to speak of death. Like you get in our culture when people talk about having passed away and I can't quite force the word died out of our mouths, Right? We use euphemisms, but that's not what this is. This is a perfect analogy that he's using. It's a perfect analogy. Sleep is temporary. It's reversible. And when you wake up with the light, you're refreshed. You have new energy. And because of Jesus Christ, even, even death is like that. It's temporary. It's reversible. And in the resurrection, there's complete renewal, complete renewal. And the Bible uses this sort of sleep language for death a lot. I mean, it talks about it all over the place. David went and slept with his fathers after he died and was buried, right? Um, and Christians have, since the world saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've used this language too. 
It's the perfect language because his resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection so that we know that death, death really is more like sleep than just the end. In fact, the word cemetery, um, it comes from the Greek for sleeping place. It's not place of the dead, it's place of the sleeping. So, the disciples were a little slow on the take, so Jesus spoke more directly to them. Lazarus has died. He's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. We'd think maybe, boy, if he showed up and in the nick of time raised Lazarus from the brink of death, we'd, we'd all believe, right? Jesus said, even better than that, I'm glad I wasn't there to do that. So that what happens when we go there, then you're, you're really going to believe. You're going to believe, right? I'm glad I didn't prevent his death. It will be good for you to see his resurrection. And then trust me. So the priority of his love, this is what it looks like. His love, it's not just for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's for his disciples. It's his love for us. The priority of his love is to reveal himself to them for their faith, for their trust. The priority of his love is to make sure you know who he is so that you can trust him, so you can believe in him. This is what he meant when he first heard the prayer for help in their message that they sent. Um, It says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This illness, it It'll lead through death. Don't make that mistake. It's going there. Right? But it won't terminate in death. It won't end there. It will ultimately lead to the revelation of the glory of God, to the glorification of his son. That is, actually, this is going to lead to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the life of the world. That's what Jesus means. Don't worry, this isn't going to end in death. But it is, going to, it is going to go through the path of Lazarus' death and resurrection and then my death and resurrection, and that's the glory of God revealed to you. He's the risen Lord. He himself is the resurrection. That's the language that we'll use later. <clears throat> if God's love then looks like the death and resurrection of his own son, what do you think God's love is going to look like in your life? Roses, comforts, pleasures all the time, easy life? What do you think God's love is going to look like in your life? It's going to look like death and resurrection. That's what his love looks like. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Let's go to Judea. Death and resurrection, here we come. I'll go first so that when you follow, you can be with me where I am. That's the real glory of God as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He could have forsaken us to the death that our sins deserve, but but he wants new life for us with him. He wants us to be with him. And that'll mean death and resurrection. He wants us to be with him. So he, he took our death upon himself, Jesus did, and then took up his life, Again, so that what is true of him might be true of us as well. He died, but he was raised. 
and he ascended into heaven, now he's seated at God's right hand. He lives with God forever on our behalf as our mediator, right? What's true of him can be true of us, and that's why he took our death upon himself, and that's why he's raised from the dead to be with God forever. So he doesn't just spare us all our individual sufferings and deaths, right? You may have noticed that after Jesus' death and resurrection, death didn't stop being a reality for everybody, right? He doesn't spare us from pain and the cancer and the death. He doesn't spare us from that, but he gives us the privilege of knowing him and being with him in these things and through these things. He gives us the privilege of participating in the shape of his own love, in the shape of his own glory, death and resurrection-shaped love and glory. But we have the privilege of participating with him in that. That could be a depressing thought if you just want Jesus to give you a nice life, right? If the main thing that you want is a comfortable, pain-free existence, then, and you're in a relationship with Jesus because you think he's going to facilitate that, then suffering is going to be unbearably hard for you because you're basically going to be believing that Jesus doesn't love you. You're basically going to be believing that God doesn't love you. And that's the, that's the really hard reality. That's the thing we want to push to the back of our minds. But if you want Jesus for his own sake, and if being with him, being with him through all of life's sufferings, uh, if, if that's interesting to you, and it makes you able with the apostle even to, to rejoice in your sufferings, then, then this right here, this is good news. He does love you, and he has promised never to leave you or forsake you, even when it seems like he has. Even when it seems like he has. Here's a quote from John Calvin at the beginning of the bulletin. When God permits us to be overwhelmed with distresses and to languish long under them, let us know that in this manner he promotes our salvation. This is how he's bringing us to himself. This is how he's giving himself to us and sharing who he is with us. Most of us Christians are torn about that. Yeah, the suffering really, really hurts, and it overwhelms, and we get tunnel vision, and it becomes very difficult not to just pray for relief from that pain. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So, So rumor has it, Thomas was called the twin. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be something that was pointed out if, if he were a twin. It's that he's called the twin. It's like some nickname for him, right? Um, because, because he carried in himself two men. This, this is the commentator's speculation anyway. <laughs> it makes sense when you get to know Thomas a little bit through, especially the Gospel of John. He carried in himself two men. He was a divided soul. He had some pretty strong doubts, and he was a believer. And that's a pretty good description for every Christian, for everybody who's connected to Christ. He has a bit of a cloudy, defeatist attitude here. Well, we might as well go die along with Lazarus and everybody else. 
He only sees the death that's ahead. He doesn't hear the part where Jesus says, I'm going to wake Lazarus. And he doesn't, he doesn't put those things together. There's resurrection coming on the other end of this. But he sticks with Jesus, and he encourages his friends to do so as well. Rodney Whitaker says he's not following because he sees how it all fits. Boy, don't we wish we could see how it all fits when God allows the suffering and, and the cancer and the death. He's not following because he sees how it all fits. He's following out of loyalty to Jesus himself. So Thomas's words here are better than he knows, better than he probably intended. And there's sort of a double entendre or maybe even a triple. So he's right. Marching back toward Judea means death in Jerusalem, for Jesus, anyway. What he doesn't know yet is that when Jesus died, and this is the gospel, when Jesus died, we all died with him. We all died with him. His death was our death. The spiritual significance of his death counts for us. Our flesh was mortified and killed. Our guilt was done away with. Our sins atoned for in his death. When he died, we all died because we're spiritually united to him by faith and through baptism, right? It's the picture of baptism is we are united with Christ even in his death so that we might be united with him in his resurrection. But Thomas didn't know that. When Jesus died, we died with him, right? And then knowing the gospel that Jesus is with us, that, that word with is super important. <laughs> Jesus is with us and we are with him always. Knowing that gospel, believers are then able to pick up their crosses and follow him even as they march toward their own deaths, wherever those may be, whatever shape those take. Because the one who is with us, he isn't just the one who died. He isn't just the crucified one. He's the risen one. That's what we remember every morning, uh, every Sunday morning as we come here and proclaim the resurrection together. The one who is himself the resurrection. He goes with us into all of our pain, all of the sorrow, all of our death. The one whose resurrection is with us, and he'll never leave us or forsake us. <clears throat> so that journey won't end in pain. That journey won't end in death. The journey will end in everlasting life in God's kingdom at his right hand, because that's where Jesus is right now. He's our forerunner. Jesus doesn't delay and let us suffer because he's sadistic. He loves us. That's his motivation for delaying and allowing our sufferings and even allowing our deaths. It isn't just to teach us a lesson through our pain. That's too impersonal. That's too formulaic. Okay, I've learned my lesson. You can stop the pain now, right? He gives us himself. He's for us. He's with us. He's even in us by his spirit somehow. I don't know how it works. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us and in us. And the more you get to know Jesus, the better that deal sounds, no matter what your circumstances. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've sent your Son into the world 
to live for us. As one of us, yet without sin, to restore our humanity in his life, to repair it, to atone for it in his sufferings and in his death, the crucifixion, and then to triumph over all of it in his resurrection and ascension into glory to your right hand. We're thankful for Christ, our mediator. We pray that you would teach us more about your love in Jesus Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ as he's offered to us and presented in the gospel. We pray for your Spirit's help, especially as we encounter those very hard times that we do encounter, that we have encountered, and that we will encounter. We pray that you would always keep our eyes fixed on Christ so that we can celebrate your presence with us, your glory, a strange glory that it is, the glory of death and resurrection, your love to us. It is true that you do love us, and that doesn't mean you're going to spare us from um, the difficulties and pains and death in this world, but it does mean that we get you, and you are the resurrection. We look forward to that day when when you return and you raise us all to everlasting life at your side. And until then, we pray that you'd keep a vision of that squarely in our minds so that we can go through life with you in the light rather than apart from you stumbling in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.